0: For millennia, religions have concocted numerous manifestations of heaven and the afterlife, and though no one has ever returned from such a place to report what it is really like, or that it even exists, today's science and technology are being used to try to make it happen in our lifetime. In the book we're looking at today, Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia, Dr. Michael Shermer sets out to discover what drives humans' belief in life after death. Focusing on recent scientific attempts to achieve immortality, along with utopian attempts to create heaven on earth. From radical life extension, to cryonic suspension, to mind uploading, Shermer considers how realistic these attempts are from a proper skeptical perspective and concludes with an uplifting tribute to purpose and progress and a word on how we can live well in the here and now, whether or not there is a hereafter. Dr. Michael Shermer is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine a monthly columnist for Scientific American, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches Skepticism 101. He joins me today to tell us about his latest book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Shermer to talk about his book, Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Just to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in this field?
1: Oh, well, my background is in experimental psychology and the history of science. I have two graduate degrees, and I was just doing the regular college professor thing and and started the Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society in my garage and just really as a hobby. And it, it took off in the 90s, and and it kind of became all-consuming and it, to the point where I quit being a professor and just became a full time public intellectual, as it were, magazine publisher and editor, and and uh, then I got a monthly columnist um, position at Scientific American, and and started writing my books and giving public talks and so on. And I, I'm still a college professor, just but just part time, an adjunct professor at Chapman University now. But uh, but my main job is really just um, writing my books and and my columns and and publishing Skeptic magazine and. Uh, you know, our thing is science, you know, science and reason is the best tools we have for understanding the world and how it works and for uh, making social change and, and moral progress.
0: Exactly. Perfect. All right. Uh, can you give us a sense of the background to this book, how it came about?
1: Uh, well, Heavens on Earth is something of an extension of my previous books, which is usually how I do it. I try not to write the same book every time, like some authors seem to do, <laughs> to push myself in new areas that I don't know that much about, um, so that I, I can learn something and, and, and grow and develop uh, my thinking and, and ideas. And, um, you know, so I've written about science and pseudoscience, science and religion, science and God, science and morality. So science and the afterlife, is kind of the next big one, uh, you know, kind of the ultimate questions, uh, that people care about and that matter in our lives. And, and so what what do scientists and philosophers have to say about that? Uh, and it turns out to be a pretty huge subject. I mean, there's, of course, the standard religious versions of the afterlife that everyone knows about, Judeo-Christian, Muslim, monotheism views of heaven. But uh, the focus of my book is, although I deal with those, but is, is more on the scientific attempts as you noted in the subtitle it's a it's a book on science, so what's the scientific attempts? Well, this is all the you know cryonics people that want to freeze and reanimate you in centuries hence, or the mind uploaders or the transhumanists, the extropians the singularity people, the radical life extensionists, and you know all these interesting super interesting groups and and organizations and even companies uh that are uh funding this research in a big way to try to Try to do what? Well, that's the question. (laughs) You know, in in general, you know, I think that the idea is like what Woody Allen said, I don't want to live on in my work. I want to live on in my apartment. Um, You know, how can we just keep going? And, uh, you know, your show's about secularism. Most, Most of these people are atheists. You know, they don't think there's an afterlife unless we make it happen or, you know, keep going somehow. So it scales up from just kind of the normal stuff that we should be doing anyway, you know, diet, exercise and eating and living relatively healthy lives uh, just to try to make it to the upper ceiling, uh, which is about 120. So I debunk the myth that people are living twice as long today as they used to live. Uh, people lived into their eighties and nineties and even into their hundreds centuries ago. It's just not very many of them did. Now today, thanks to modern medicine and, um, vaccinations, public health, and so on, Mo- more and more of us are reaching the upper ceiling, but no one's going to break through that 120-year or so upper ceiling without something dramatic happening. So that's where the action is, you know, what What are some of these new technologies and techniques people are developing? And, and so I explore a lot of that in the book.
0: Yeah. Um, and you begin by looking at the long history of thought and various coping strategies that have resulted from our awareness of m- our mortality, uh, including those referred to as immortality narratives. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So the problem is, is that you can't actually imagine yourself being dead. I mean, go ahead and try it. Um, you know, <laughs> you know. I mean, people imagine them their bodies in a casket or something and the friends and family are there, and hopefully they're mourning. <laughs> but you know, of course, you wouldn't you, you can't imagine anything when you're dead, because to imagine something, you have to be alive. So, you know, there's something of a paradox. We see death around us; it's it's real. All hundred billion people that lived before us have d- died, and none have come back. So clearly, it's a real thing. Of part of our existence, but yet I can't imagine even what that's like. So on the one hand, on the positive side, we, you don't, there's really nothing to worry about because there's nothing to experience. It's just lights out. That's it. But on the other hand, because I can't imagine it and I can only imagine continuing. and, And so this is where, the action starts where the kind of dualistic idea that something continues on beyond my physical body. And this starts very early. There's research like in Paul Bloom's re- uh, lab at, at Yale where they give kids these little a little puppet show where this little mouse gets munched by this alligator and the mouse is dead. And yes, these little kids, these are preschoolers you know, where's the mouse now? Oh, mouse is in this other place and he misses his mommy and he's hungry and he's scared. And, you know, as if something continues on, this is very early. So, you know, we are natural born dualists. We just naturally think that there's something continues and, you know, it's, it's completely understandable why you can't sense your brain operating. It feels no pain, for example. Um, and so when you, um, uh, you know, hear hear voices or, you know, imagine uh, imaginary beings or whatever, angels and demons and aliens and whatnot, um, th- you know, to the person that experiences it, they're, they're really out there somewhere because you can't sense it happening in your brain. So that sets up this idea of a soul, a mind, you just start with something it's super simple, like it feels like I have thoughts in my head. You know, I don't feel neurons swapping neurochemical transmitter substances across synaptic gaps. All I feel like is like there's thoughts floating around up there. And the soul is something like that, that, you know, this kind of dualistic nature we have of imagining something continuing, you know, a body and a soul, a brain and a mind, a corporeal and incorporeal, matter and material and immaterial. So we have these words that represent constructs that we, have. And from there, it's pretty easy to start imagining then, well, what's it like on the other side? And then, of course, that's where it gets interesting, where all these different religions and, and you know people have these different ideas of, of wh- where you're going and what it's like there.
0: Yeah. And you actually challenged the notion that facing death is terror-inducing. Um, you were looking at um, death row inmates.
1: Uh, yeah, that was one of the pretty interesting data sets I yeah. came across. I started reading about this terror management theory, um, which is a legit cognitive theory about um, well, it's, it's it's pretty extreme actually. That it, all of West, all of civilization, everything we do—creativity, architecture, writing, music, literature—everything is driven by this uh, subconscious fear of death, and that we become creative this way. Okay, so I. I pretty thoroughly debunk that. I don't think that's the driving force. In fact, if you look at, well, what is it people think about when they think about death? Because uh, that's what this research is based on. You know, how would you know? Because, you know, do we have a data set on this? Well, we do. Yeah. Death row inmates uh, are given a chance to give a final statement. So here's a group of people that, you know, they know they're going to die. They know the exact time of their death. You know, it's, you know, at twelve fifteen a.m. on this date, Boom. It's And it happens. And so there they are in the, on the gurney with the needles in their arms and the microphone comes down. Would you like to say anything? And most of them do. So the Texas Department of Justice actually records them and puts them on their webpage so you can read them. So I did a whole content analysis with some grad students that, that we all coded them and then ran an iterator reliability correlation between them just make sure we were reading this and categorizing the same things. And, and by far and away, the most common thing was just a sense of love uh, for their fellow inmates, their parents, their, well, their moms. These are mostly, almost all men. There were only three, I think there were only three women executed in the state of Texas in the last uh, 40 years. So it's, it's pretty, pretty wild. So it's all these guys, you know, love it. They love their mom, their sister, their uh, wives, their Buddies on death row and so on. They ask for forgiveness, and there's no sense of terror or, or anxiety at all. Um, and so that that's kind of an interesting idea. You know, what what is it you're going to think about when that time comes? And uh, so we actually have an idea of that. You
0: also look at the conception of heaven and the afterlife um historically starting with the traditions of the monotheist religions which makes sense uh and on to how uh various conceptions of heaven have evolved over time within those traditions and without
1: Yeah so um you have to deal with the uh, the, the big three, because that's, you know, that's, that, that's what about three billion, a little over 3 billion people or almost half the world's population are monotheists. So, uh, but even there, Jews, Christians, and, and Muslims don't agree on what the afterlife is like, or or even how to get there. Uh, I mean, Jews are, are, are the least of the three uh, religions to believe in an afterlife at all. I mean, originally, uh, the the idea of what happens after you die in in Judaism be, this is before Christianity was nothing nothing happens you just go to no, you go no place you go to this place that's nowhere <laughs> it's, it, it's we don't even really have the words for it it's just you cease to exist it's not like you're going nowhere you, there's nowhere to go right um, you know it's it's a really strange idea once you start thinking about it you know it's like that's why elsewhere in the book I asked you know, imagine no universe. Well, what do you mean? Well, like no people, no planets, no stars, no galaxies. Yeah. Okay. No light. So it's only dark. Yeah. Well, but but there's not even space or time. There, there's just nothing. And, and you can't even imagine that because, you know, again, to imagine something, you have to have a brain and so on. So, you know, it's something like that. You know, imagine what happens when you die. You just, it's where you were before you were born. Nowhere. And you, you didn't exist. There was no existence. So, you know, and originally Judaism was something like that. But then after uh, Descartes and the whole Cartesian dualism idea kind of took on in the Western world, Christianity really glommed onto that idea and it trickled down into some Ju- Judaism sects where there's actually a place you go. And then, of course, it got grafted on the good and bad, you know, heaven and hell and, and, and all that entails. And, and Islam mostly uh, uses that and, and then as well. And then heaven becomes something with well, the afterlife becomes something of a cosmic courthouse where all moral scores are settled and Hitler didn't get away with it. You know, he's going to meet his maker <laughs> along with the serial killers and school shooters and everybody else. So, you know, then it becomes modernized in that sense. And, and you know, and then of course they also well, how do you get there? You know, so then there's a whole set of, you know, criteria about what, what lets you in or not works or words or, you know, by who you are, the chosen, the elect, you know, there's a judgment, you know, it's so all on and and what's interesting about that is is they all have a different history and they all get get to different ends and you know I'm a historian of science by training you can you can read the history of cosmology say and and there's a sense that we're getting closer and closer to a deeper true understanding of what's really out there and 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 when it started and where it's going and so on there's nothing like that with heaven it's not like Oh boy! They made this major discovery in 1672 using this telescope. And now we know a little bit more about heaven. No, no, this is all just armchair philosophizing, just sitting there thinking about what it might be like, and then and then making up stories. And so it's really more like fiction, more like science fiction, fantasy. Let's, let's just imagine this other world, and then you know, and then people hear it and they're caught it from a young age, and they just assume it's true and they're told like little kids are told, you know, well, what, what happened when, you know, sorry about my uh, dog. His name is Hitch, by the way. Yeah.
0: Oh, really? Oh, how nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't like whiskey. So <laughs> 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 anyway, so, but you know, like dogs, uh, uh ch- children are taught, you know, well, what ha- what happened to grandma when she died? Well, she, she, you know, she's in heaven. She went to this other place and, and if you think about that, that's sort of a bizarre thing to to say to somebody. It's a, it's if a, is it it's as if she's still alive somewhere, but we don't get to see her anymore. And I mean, none of this really makes sense as a, a thing to tell kids. But it, it's what we do. I think we do it because it makes us feel better. Uh, and that's much of what this is about. It's it's not for the dead. It's for the living. You know, uh, to to just kind of. Try to answer that question, but as I said at the start, there's really nothing to fear because you can't experience death. The most you could experience would be um, just the dying process, and uh, but not death itself. So, um, and then you know, I kind of do a little riff on on uh, let's just play this out. Um, you know, so let, let, let's say you're you're resurrected and after after your body dies and you you appear in heaven with Jesus or whatever. You know, well, what's there? Is it your body? You know, in some Christian sects say, yeah, it's your physical body. Oh, yeah? What age am I? What? Yeah, how old am I when I'm there in heaven? You know, well, one group actually answered this. 30. You're 30 years old. Oh, you know, really?
0: Oh, gosh.
1: 30 is such a great year, you know? I <laughs> how in, in, arbitrary. I, I know. Well, not quite, because that's, that's when Jesus was crucified. Oh, okay, but still. Yeah, yeah. Well, but the problem with that is okay, but you know I'm 63 now. So what happened to my those 33 years of memories I had? If it's my 30 year old body and brain that are up there, uh, you know that's a big part of my life. I don't want to miss that uh, and have okay. Well, you get to have all those memories. Yeah, but the the memories I have now of being 30 when I'm 63 are very different than those memories were like a decade ago or two decades ago. You know, memory we know changes and gets edited. And in, in this way, in this sense, there is no self. That that's a snapshot of you. It would say that's it. That's all of you. No, no, that's just a snapshot. And so that problem of identity in philosophy actually uh, grafts nicely onto the, the problem of the soul. What is the soul? You know, it's the same thing. It's you. Well, you. We're going to resurrect you. We're going to copy you somehow. And so the same problems that, you know, religion has in this sense, I, I think the mind uploaders and, and scientific attempts at this also have. But but before we get to that, you know, it's just this idea of this afterlife, like uh, I, I quote from my friend Julia Sweeney, the Saturday Night Live comedian, and her letting go of God monologue when the Mormon boys come around to her apartment, her house in Hollywood, trying to give her the pitch for Mormonism. And, you know, when, when you die, you're made whole again and the blind shall see and the deaf shall hear and the crippled shall be healed. And, and so Julia says, well, you know, I had my uterus taken out because I had uterine cancer. And, and, and so when I die, do I get my uterus back? You can imagine 18 <laughs> year old boys going, uh, what? And so they go, yeah, you get it back. She says, I don't want it back. <laughs> and then she says, what if you had a nose job and you liked it? I don't want my old nose back. You know, so it's like, it's, OK, so then some other sects say, no, no, it's not your body. And forget all that silliness. It's just your soul. But OK, but what is that? You know, again, it's just a copy of of what, you know, all your memories, but you're more than your memories. You're, you're also your point of view, your, your point of view self, it's called instead of your memory self, um, that's you looking out through your eyes at the world, the, the experience you have, the continuity of life from day to day goes away a little bit during sleep and and more so during general anesthesia but so when i die and i and i w- will i wake up i'll open my eyes and be looking at something in heaven and i mean when you start thinking about these things seriously it, it none of it makes any sense uh which is why i think the scientific attempts are at least interesting because they have this idea of, of a continuity. You just keep going like you're chronically frozen and a thousand years from now somebody wakes you up and, and, and you're looking out through your eyes again. That's that's their idea. I don't think this could ever happen, but but that's, that's the attempt. So it, it, they, they at least meet the problem of identity and the continuity of self from one moment to the next.
0: Well, and it's really interesting how our scientific – understanding of ourselves and what makes self has raised these questions with some older ideas of of soul and just waking up in heaven um you know questioning what what is what is the essential self that is that is waking up there and that takes us into the second part of your book um which you entitle the scientific search for immortality so now we're getting into some of these topics that you alluded to before of of uh, a more scient well quote unquote scientific Um, attempt to achieve immortality. Um, And so you start by looking at some of the um, new agey kind of brands of spirituality taught by gurus like Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle, I think I'm saying that right. Um, So can you tell us uh, why you see a connection between their theories and the scientists approach to understanding consciousness?
1: Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to to leave out non western traditions on this topic uh you know those those of us that are westerners are often accused of uh, of being weird you know western educated industrial uh what's the r um i forget now and and then and then democratic okay uh, yeah, you know that there's there's other parts of the world. Okay, so what do they believe? And and you know the biggest tradition, you know, sort of Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, that kind of Eastern wisdom tradition, as it's called. And the and the most famous practitioner of that in the in the Western world is Deepak Chopra. You know, his whole thing is kind of a westernized version of these eastern traditions, and I thought that would be of most interest to you know Western readers of my books. My book, and so I got you know I, I've known Deepak for a long time, and we've kind of been at odds with each other for for decades, and you know, but now we're kind of friends, and 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 so I, I really you know, inculcated myself into his worldview just to understand it. You know what what is it you're talking about here when you die, and you know, where do you go after you die? You know where where were you before you were born? Is my answer to that? Well, Deepak's answer is that that's not that's not even the right question. You're not going anywhere. You're just returning to where you used to be in this cosmic consciousness. That consciousness is the primary substance, but not even substance. That, that's not even the right word. It's the he calls it the ontological primitive. The you know there's 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 nothing there's nothing to get under consciousness. It's not like Boring into atoms and you get subatomic particles and then quarks and then strings. It's nothing like that. That, that all this material stuff is just a temporary instantiation of consciousness. So we just, we just, we're still a conscious state, just not instantiated in material stuff anymore when you die. That, that's their idea. So I just wanted to understand that and kind of go through some of that. And, uh, there, at least there's some idea of, you know, the, that, that your conscious Awareness, self-awareness, your, your sentience, uh, that, that, that's who you are, uh, in, in that worldview. And, and, and I think there, at least there's some, some uh, idea of, you know, making the world a better place now in that idea of, you know, create our own heavens on earth here. You know, that's what they're trying to do. People like Deepak and and Eckhart Tolle, you know, Eckhart's famous for his book, The Power of Now. And what they mean is, is that there is no past. You only have the memory of your memories of the past. And these things have happened already. You can't do anything about it. So don't worry about it. Quit obsessing about the past and the future hasn't happened yet. So, well, it's okay to plan for some of it, but but overly obsessed about planning for the future, you're going to miss now. So now is the only time that really matters. And, you know, in a way, that's true by definition, although I'd like to remind Deepak, you know, my mortgage is due next week. Uh, <laughs> do I have to pay attention to that or can I ignore that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course... Obviously, you have to have some planning for the future, but I can, I get what the the appeal of that? You know, I I went to one of uh, Deepak and Eckhart's big events here in L. A. You know, they filled the Shrine Auditorium. This is like sixty six hundred seat theater. It was filled. You know, these are people that paid like a hundred bucks a piece. I mean, this is you know what is it six hundred sixty thousand bucks for the night? Wow. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And these are, you know, well-dressed, you know, pulling up in Lexuses and Teslas. And, you know, these are, you know, a lot of celebrities from Hollywood were there. And, you know, these were not uneducated, hoi polloi, nobodies, you know. I mean, this is obviously a well-educated, well-read audience here. And, you know, there's something appealing about this. And and, and in that case, it's definitely not the, you know, you're going to heaven to be with Jesus crowd. Uh, This is something else. And and that explains that data that that uh, finding i report in the book about um that a third of atheists report believing in the continuation of consciousness after death you know say what atheists i thought they didn't believe in god or the afterlife yeah that's right but but they're still kind of subject to that idea that somehow maybe your consciousness continues in some other state and you know, a lot of I think agnostics and atheists—they tick that box. You know, spiritual but not religious. Maybe they're followers of people like Deepak and and uh, Buddhism and and you know the the eternal return of consciousness in some other form and, and that sort of thing. So they're they're not hardcore materialists like me. that just you know believe that nothing happens. There's it's the end of everything when you die. So uh, I but, but I'm in the minority for sure. I believe in that.
0: Hmm. I guess I am too. Cause I share your belief. I, I, and, and I use the same kind of, um, uh, example that you do with the question of, well, where do you think you were before you were born? You know, you weren't experiencing your absence. So, but, um, But anyway, um, next you examine near-death experiences. This is the logical next place to turn, I suppose, um, because it may be the closest thing uh, we have to something like evidence for consciousness after death, uh, unless that's just the, you know, hallucinations of a stressed brain or something. Do you want to tell us about your research into that topic?
1: Well, I think that is what it is. Something like... What the brain does when it undergoes extreme stress, of uh, like a heart attack, near drowning, um, problems during surgery—there's a lot of different conditions. Oxygen deprivation; uh, these these sorts of things seems to trigger these uh, anomalous psychological experiences that people have. So, first, I, I acknowledge that the experiences are real, um, but, but but what we want to know is, do they? Represent something out there in the world. You're going someplace versus just only in your head. And of course, we can't get inside people's heads when they have these experiences. We only have their words to report it. So, I believe them when they say, "Boy, I had this wild experience. floated out of my body, went through the tunnel, the white light at the end of the tunnel, all that." Uh, I believe them, but but I don't believe that that represents a place where they go any more than I think that the you know the person that takes ayahuasca and says, Oh, my God, you should see where I went. Uh, you know, there were these fantastic beings and creatures and colors and sounds, and I felt great love and all this stuff. Yeah, I know you, you took an acid trip, essentially, <laughs> you, you took drugs, you know, that's what drugs do. But you know, to the to the ayahuasca taker, you know, they they really feel like they went somewhere. And that's true with people I've talked to, like even Alexander, he wrote that book, Proof of Heaven is probably the most famous of the NDE books. Uh, He's famous because he's a Harvard-trained neurologist. So, you know, he knows more about the brain than I do. And and, and he knows all the research I cite in the book about – you know, you can accelerate pilots in a centrifuge, and as they're blacking out, they have these like near-death, out-of-body type experiences, or you can tap parts of the, elect- of the temporal lobes of an electrode during open brain surgery, and the awake patient will report floating out of their body and being up by the ceiling looking down and so on. We know this is in the brain, 100% in the brain for sure. But the power of experience, the people that have it, uh, is just overwhelming. And so like I've I've met even seven several times on TV shows and in the green room, you know, I'll ask him, you know, you know, all this stuff that I know, uh, why don't you attribute your own to what you, you know, you surely attribute other people's experiences to, which he used to, but now that he had his own, he doesn't anymore that they're actually like the ayahuasca taker. They're actually going somewhere, you know, heaven. Now that it's interesting that although there are some similarities, you know, the tunnel and all that, you would expect that because as the oxygen shuts down, uh, on the visual cortex of the brain, it, you're, you're going to get kind of a tunneling or spiraling type effect, and and so the, so there's probably good physiological explanations for the components, but 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 people don't report the same place as if if, if there really were a place you go, you would think we'd get similar reports, but they're they're actually quite different when you look at them. They're very individualized, which is exactly what you'd expect if it's only happening in your head, and so what we need is some common thing to see. So there are uh, experiments ongoing where uh, people, experimenters have put like a photograph of something on a high shelf in a OR room or a, a recovery room where people have these types of experiences in hospitals facing up such that if they're up there looking down, they'd see this picture. And when they come back, report what it is. Anyway, no, no one has successfully done this. Mm. And the One and only example I report about the tennis shoe on the window, lit uh, window sill window ledge, uh, you know, was never, was never a, a actually corroborated. It, we only have one, a, a, one story about that. And you know, so looking for, you know, kind of scientific evidence to support this—it it doesn't hold up. It, it really doesn't. And same, same thing with reincarnation. The other example, you know, the souls seem to be hovering around the subcontinent of India, looking for bodies to inhabit. I mean, the, the thing—it's it, all fraught with logical inconsistencies. Not, not to mention that. Problems with the the reports, the narrative stories people tell about them. So, none of that, unfortunately, uh, is is evidence for, for the afterlife. Although, I'm not sure I really should say unfortunately because I'm not I'm not 100 sure I want there to be an afterlife. It would depend on what it is. Uh, you know, as Christopher Hitchens famously said, the, the Christian afterlife or heaven is like celestial North Korea. You know, <laughs> we have this all knowing, all powerful dictator that, that that controls everything you do. That 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 doesn't sound heavenly. You know, that, that sounds like a dictatorship. We don't want that. You know, and, and I, I talk about my college professor uh, when I was a Christian in college. Um, I believed all this stuff and I'm witnessing to, for the Lord to my everybody, including my college philosophy professor. And he said, all right, uh, in heaven, are there tennis courts and golf courses? Because, you know, I'd be bored. Otherwise, I got to have some challenges you know, make it interesting that, you know, anything that lasts forever is going to get boring after a while. So, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about going to heaven? I mean, what would that, what does that even entail? So, you know, all of that is just, you know, kind of fraught with logical and, and scientific problems.
0: And here in the book is where you you talk about the identity problem that you uh, mentioned before um, and how it relates to some of the uh, dead serious ways some pe- groups of people are attempting to use technology to prolong life and how those kind of bring up this question of the uh, identity problem. So I was t- wondering if you could tell us what you've learned about uh, and you mentioned them before, the cryonicists, the extropians, the transhumanists, omega point theorists, singulitarians, and mind uploaders.
1: Right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot in there. Yeah. I call it afterlife for atheists because the, again, these are people that want to somehow make it happen. We can't just hope that it happens. And, you know, so the cryonics people, well, first of all, radical life extensionists, um, Uh, You know, what we know from medical researchers that study aging and longevity is that none of these techniques people come up with, diets, radical calorie restriction, various uh, and sundry uh, supplements and and minerals and vitamins and all that stuff, none of that is going to do anything for longevity. It may make you temporarily healthier, but Probably not, you know, not not even that. I mean, just a a good, rounded, healthy diet, unless you have some major depletion, like an iron or something, even most of the supplements are just a waste of money. Uh, None of that's going to do much of anything. I mean, there's certain obvious things you could do, diet and exercise, don't smoke, don't drink too much, don't, you know, don't get involved in risky, high-risk sports like skydiving or something. I mean, things that can take you out. Uh, but you know, none of that's going to make a difference for longevity. It's just maybe you'll last longer before you get to the upper ceiling. What the radical people want to do is, you know, somehow re-engineer the genome, fix the, n- the cellular physiology uh, in, in which cells age. When you hit your eighties and nineties, you know, the, the drop off is pretty rapid and dramatic, and cell at the cellular level. So, uh, people like Aubrey de Grey have their has this program which he wants to re-engineer cells well he he's got seven seven things he wants to do he he hasn't been able to do any of them yet um and you have people like ray kurzweil the singularity is near guy and and he takes a couple hundred supplements a day you know and probably just pisses it out i mean i've I've tried that before you you just have this like bright orange or green (laughs) You know, it's just it's just your body just flushes it out when it doesn't need it. And that's where most of this stuff goes. And calorie restrictions, you know, there was research on on uh, rats and mice. They live longer if you give them, you know, a low calorie diet, um, never been uh, corroborated with uh, on, um, replicated on, on primates or humans. Uh, but even if it was, uh, you know, so you get to live an extra 10 years being hungry all the time. Uh, you know, this is, this is no good. Uh, and and it, it does nothing to stop this, you know, the, the problem of cellular aging in the long run. It's going to get you. And so, so what, why can't cells just continue dividing indefinitely? Why do they only divide X number of times? It's usually like 40, 50, 60 times in a lifetime. And then they die. Why can't they just keep uh, dividing indefinitely? Well, there are some cells that divide indefinitely. They're called cancer cells so somehow we have to fix the problem uh, of cells dividing indefinitely and not becoming cancers these are not trivial problems every every one of the problems involved in aging is huge and we've and we've accomplished next to nothing to stop it um, what we've been able to accomplish is you know solving specific things certain kinds of cancers we've been able to you know make some headway on but some of the other big ones like Alzheimer's senility, dementia, no, almost no progress at all. You know, so that uh, this pie in the sky. We're the first generation that's going to live a thousand years. Aubrey de Grey says, you know, nonsense, no way. Uh, this is just not there, you know? So what about the cryonics? Okay. The freezing process or the thawing process is going to destroy your neurons. Uh, and therefore, your memories are gone. So even if they could wake you up, what's the point? You wouldn't even know you're there. So the so walking zombie isn't going to do it if it could even be done at all, which it can't be. And even with the new techniques involving uh, cryopreservation uh, chemicals, you pump the body full of when once when, the person's dead. By the way, I should remind your your listeners, you know that uh, in cryonics you are frozen on the worst day of your life, the day you died. Okay, this is not a good start. <laughs>
0: That's and, true.
1: Uh, and according to the state, the government, um, you know, cryonics can only be done after you're dead. You're not; they're not allowed to do it while well, the patient's still alive. It would be a form of uh, physician-assisted suicide. So, I was
0: going to ask: Would that change if the laws changed about euthanasia?
1: Yes, it, it would help if if um, if you if you did it while you're still alive, and they could somehow pump the. Uh, cryopreservation chemicals in there through your circulatory system while it was still active, that would help preserve the brain. Because for example, we can freeze embryos and then thaw them out and bring them back to life. That's called IVF, in vitro fertilization works. Uh, but an embryo is really, really tiny, and a brain is gigantic. And uh, you know, an embryo is you know, a couple of cells. You know, uh, and and a, and a brain is you know a hundred billion cells. So the damage is going to be extensive if the cryopreservation isn't done perfectly. And we're not even close to being able to do that. So that leaves the problem of again, the problem of identity. If if your memories are shattered and gone, then What's, what's the point? You're, you're not being brought back at all. And that brings me to the last, the big one is this whole idea of mind uploading. There's different versions of this, but the idea is we copy your, your connectome. The connectome is the analog to your genome. It's the copy of, it's the, it's, so first of all, your, you yourself uh, are not your physical material self uh, only because that gets replaced every seven to 10 years. Virtually all the cells in your body now are not the same material they were um, a decade ago. So it's not just the stuff that you're made out of. It's the pattern of you. So the idea with the connectome, it's, it's the pattern of your memories that we want to preserve. So if we could somehow copy that. Now the only way to do this at the moment would be to, you know, after your death, just take your, your uh, brain out and slice it in an electron microscope, you know, scan it in an electron microscope and copy all the, the synaptic connections where the memories are stored and then upload it into a computer or the cloud and turn it on. And, and so the idea is you would appear there. There's a movie about this. Johnny Depp plays this um, computer scientist that gets – he gets poisoned. It's these terrorist attack kind of thing. And they give him polonium, so he has like two weeks to live. So he figures out, he copies his connectome, puts it in the cloud. He dies, and they turn on the computer, and there he is. <laughs> He's you know in there looking out through the little camera hole or whatever. Okay, this isn't going to happen. It's just a copy, if it could even be done, which it can't. But, 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 let's play science fiction for a mo- moment and say that, say, 100 years from now, 1000 years from now, there's a sophisticated fMRI brain scanner and we scan your connectome while you're standing there. You're still alive. And we slide you out of the computer, out of the scanner, and then we turn the, the, the copy of you on in the cloud or computer. And it, you're not going to suddenly, go into there. Your point of view is not going to transfer into the cloud or the computer. You're going to still be sitting there looking out at the world through your eyes. So you're going to look at that copy and go, well, that's not me. That's a copy of me. Even if the copy says, I am you, <laughs> it's not you. And, and, and so even if this could be done, I contend. Now, I, I, I will admit that there's much disagreement about this. This is kind of a big philosophical debate involved with the problem of identity. Who are you? And I contend you're not just your memories. You're also your point of view. And if the, if the continuity it doesn't last and continue, and if it, it, I don't see how it would jump from your head into the computer or even a clone. Um, and so, therefore, that's not you. It's just a copy. And no more does the twin look at its sibling and go, well, there I am. Or there I go. No, it's just a copy of me. And uh, anyway, so I find all this stuff super fascinating because the people that are involved, are, they love science and technology. But, I, but, but I, I enjoy it in the same way I enjoy reading science fiction. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's true or that we should put our hopes into it. And, and I find it, I mentioned earlier, I was religious. I was an evangelical born Christian for about seven years in my youth. High school and college, and um, you know, so I went to. I've, I've been to a lot of churches, and I know what it feels like to sit there and you know think, hey, we're the we're this chosen ones. We get to go. To, we get to live forever. We get to go to heaven. All that that feels good. And I noticed that like when I went to the Singularity Summit, and there's Ray Kurzweil giving his "I Have a Dream" speech about yeah, we get to live forever and all this. We get to the Singularity in 2040. Yeah, blah blah. Wow, blah. you know, it's like oh come on, you know who am I listening to? He is like the preacher again. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> you know, I I don't want to call it a cult, but it, but it feels a little bit like a religious impulse. Yeah. You know, again, that, that, that chosen thing, we're the special generation. We're the ones that get to make it, you know, your skeptical alarm should go off.
0: Uh, In your next section, you explore uh, the sort of strange state of contradiction that despite living in a time of unequaled affluence and technologically created ease, we actually remain fairly pessimistic about the present uh, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so this this is the utopian part of the book. Uh, I wanted to cover this subject because I dealt with it a little bit in my previous book, The Moral Arc, and I wanted to uh, uh, play with it a little bit more in in this in the in the idea of creating heavens on earth. And if we can't go somewhere, heaven, the afterlife, whatever, maybe we could do it here. And of course, that's been the impulse of the utopian writers and doers for centuries, and they always fail you know so why is that and and so then i also play with the idea of progress and and decline and there's an interesting cognitive effect that um that's called the negativity bias that is um although we 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 tend to think of our own lives in a slightly more optimistic with a slightly more optimistic bias uh in which we think uh, you know, our lives are going to get better, but society as a whole is going to hell in a handbasket and things are worse than they've ever been. And if we can only get back to the good old days, whatever that was, the 1950s, the ancient Greeks, whatever, everybody has a different version of the good old days. But this idea of decline is the result of the fact that we notice more bad things happening than good things happening. Uh, for a simple cognitive reason that we evolved the, the propensity to notice things that could take us out of the gene pool rather than notice things that could make life slightly better tomorrow than today. And the reason for that is the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. Uh, there's more ways for things to go wrong or bad or just dissipate than than good. and 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 creating a little lump of organized material out of the entropy of the universe actually requires energy. You have to put energy into the system to make it come together, and that's hard to do. So, um, so you know, all of life is kind of a pushback against entropy. I meant uh, we mentioned the extropians earlier—that's that, sort of a half-tongue-and-cheek name group that, that they're against entropy. You know, well, you can't do it. Ultimately, that's what's going to get us. But natural selection is the one driving force that pushes back against entropy. So. Uh, The second law of thermodynamics is really the first law of life. It's pushing back against entropy. But that fact that that there's more ways for things to go wrong than, than good means our psychology evolved to pay more attention to that. So that's kind of the driving force behind why people think think things are getting bad and they were better before. And then the utopian part comes in. Well, let's see if we can do something about it. Let's see if we can engineer the perfect society. So anyway, I go through all that and show why that always fails. Basically, human nature is, is too diverse and changing for any one system to work. There is, If you ask what's the perfect society, the answer is no such thing. And there never will be uh, because people have changing interests and desires and wants and needs and so on. So, um, you know, that's so even the attempts to create a heaven on earth uh, can't work. Uh, And so we we end up there with with uh, more skepticism.
0: Yeah. In fact, uh, you show how utopic thinking um, in the past especially has been tied to the worst kind of racism and nationalism, unfortunately
1: oh yes well yeah because uh, because we're also tribal and and we can imagine a perfect world in our heads, and then when not everybody goes along with it uh the, our our tendency in a utilitarian like calculus, well, you know if we're talking about a perfect society where everyone's happy forever. If it weren't for this group over here preventing us from getting there and creating that perfect society, whoever they are, the Jews, the Hutus, the Native Americans, whatever, you know, we got to get rid of them. And that's really it's one of the worst things that's ever happened in the history of our species is this whole idea of this of of a. perfect society we can reach if only we can get rid of these people that are preventing us and that's really the basis of genocide it's what's led to some of the worst things our species has ever done to one another uh, you know so the consequences of that idea are, are pretty pretty serious.
0: In the fourth and final section of your book, uh, you begin by considering the question of why we die. And you talk about proximate causes and ultimate causes, as well as some of the latest efforts from biology to understand the aging process. So tell us, are we going to see a cure for aging anytime soon?
1: <laughs> no. no. <laughs> you alluded to I'm that sorry.
0: before, yeah.
1: I think the, the most we can hope for well, let me, let me put it this way. You know, when, when, when these people I've gotten to know say, you know, Shermer, don't you want to live to be 500 years, 1,000 years? I say, look, just get me to 80 without cancer, 90 without Alzheimer's, you know, 100 without being senile in a bed on a morphine drip just oblivious to the world, you know, so just one problem at a time. And, you know, let's just try to increase the quality of life for more people in more places longer, step-by-step, year by year. And so don't worry about a thousand. We don't live a thousand years from now. We, we live now and next year. Uh, and, 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 and then, so in terms of why we die, okay, well, so, so first of all, we have a, a tilted skewed psychology about that. You know, we, we focus on what's called the availability heuristic or bias that, you know, we notice the things that, that are, that are most available in our memory, you know. So if you ask people, "What are you most worried about?" You know, oh, terrorist attacks and shark attacks and uh, you know these kind of killer bees or whatever. You know, no, these are like way, way down the list. You know, like hundredth on the list of things that'll take you out. You know, after cancer, heart disease, um, you know, automobile accidents live in America, guns, you know, these things have much higher rates of, of taking people out than, um, than, than these other things. So, but that's only the proximate, um, you know, cause of death, uh, ultimate, you know, why do we have to die in the first place? Why can't we just live forever? And, uh, and again, it's so, that Second law of thermodynamics: entropy. You know the the system is designed to to run down. Yeah, but my little infant, you know, he, he continues to wind up. I mean, he's just you know he's he's just cells are dividing like crazy. He's growing, and you know why why can't we just do that forever? to stay young and healthy, and our skin is taut and, and tight, and and our heart is you know young, and, and and our cells are clean, and you know all this. Why can't that just continue like it does in childhood? Okay, so the second the, the second uh, law of nature there is, is evolution. that um, Okay, the way to say this, that, that it's not, not too mis- misleading, is that, you know, natural selection only allocates enough energy from the environment to get your genes into the next generation, say, two generations after you. After that, it doesn't need you anymore. Okay, so the, the way to think about this is that Um, what's the purpose of life? It's to to survive and reproduce and get your genes to the next generation. But it's not enough to just have sex once and then check out and hope that the offspring grow up and become you know, reproductively successful adults. No, you got to, you got to nurture them, particularly if you're a a slow growing species like us. So it's good for you to live well into your 20s, 30s and 40s to make sure your offspring grow up into their 20s and 30s. So you really need to live maybe 60 or 70 or maybe a little bit more uh, for, you know, grandparents play a role in helping their kids raise their children. So grandparents and their grandkids. But after that, Really, what what purpose are you? What what we don't really need great grandparents or great great grandparents. There's enough caretakers for the uh, the children to grow into reproductively successful adults that you're just really no longer needed anymore. The, in, in other words, because of the limitation of energy, there's only so much energy capture in an ecosystem um, that it's better that the the growing young children get the energy to make it to adulthood, so they reproduce, than that the grandparents live an extra 50 years and become great, great, great grandparents. And that, that's, those are the two ultimate reasons why we die. Right. That we die so others can live in that sense.
0: So in the last chapter, you turn to the question of finding meaning in life, and you start by talking about experiencing a sense of awe, and you go on to argue that everything in our environment, including us, is imbued with purpose, no deity required. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So I, I didn't want to leave the book uh, on a down note, like, well, we all are going to die and there's no perfect society now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cause that's not the way I feel at all. Um, you know, I'm by nature kind of an optimistic theory person. And, you know, so I, I'm not worried about death personally, but, but what about other people? And, and uh, you know, what's the purpose of life if, if this is all there is and Okay. So in part, I call this Alvy's error. Alvy is Alvy Singer, Woody Allen's character in Annie Hall. And at the beginning of the film, near the beginning of the film, he has this flashback as a child where he refuses to do his homework and his mom takes him to the psychiatrist. You know, Alvy, why wouldn't you do your homework? And he said, the universe is expanding. The universe is expanding. Yeah, the universe is everything that there is. And if it's expanding, then one day it's all going to blow apart. So none of this matters. I shouldn't, I don't need to do my homework." And his mom yells at him, what's the universe going to do with it? You live in Brooklyn and Brooklyn's not expanding. So (laughs) get back to work. And and that's right. We don't, you know, it doesn't, whether there's an afterlife or not doesn't really matter because we don't live in the afterlife. We live in this life. And whether this is a hereafter doesn't matter because we live here now, not in the hereafter. And so ultimately uh, what we do now is everything. It's the only thing that counts um and so well what should we do then to lead a meaningful life and so i explore the psychology of that in the last chapter and i think i'll leave, leave it to your listeners to to read it because i you know i gave it some thought and tried to write poetically about that um but but, but i'll give you a hint it's not just uh, being plugged into a morphine drip and having, you know, the happiest day of your life every day, just goofing off and doing nothing—that's not going to do it,
0: <laughs> right? And I'll I'll also mention too um, that you point to the fact that a heightened awareness of mortality tends to bring out the best in people. So, but I'll put it—I'll leave it there as well.
1: That's right. Yeah, I, I think it does. So, I on an uplifting note, I. Think.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, Michael, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you again so much for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, but before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on?
1: Uh, well, now, uh, well, I always have my monthly column in Scientific American I'm working on and so on. I'm, and I have a few television projects in the works to you know, do some documentaries based on, on my work. And I'm trying to decide which book to write next. Uh, I haven't made that decision. I, I actually have a kind of a secret desire to try my hand at science fiction, although I've never done it, so I don't. I don't know. But I, there's enough of these things that you know I've written about in, in terms of nonfiction that it would be fun to spin into a story if I could do that. That would be a challenge. Um, and uh, you know, but that's uh, you know, and always. Uh, with Skeptic Magazine looking to see what needs to be addressed. And, you know, at the moment, it's this whole idea of fake news and alternative facts and postmodernism and there is no truth. And there's kind of a new war on science from both the left and the right. And, you know, so that's kind of my you know day job project is to combat that.
0: Right. Well, those all sound excellent. So thank you so much again. I really, really enjoyed being able to chat with you. Um, And hopefully, maybe in the future, we'll be able to talk to you again with some of your future projects. But uh...
1: that'd be great. No, and I appreciate you having me. And and thanks Ah,
0: thanks again. Goodbye. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Shermer about his book, Heavens on Earth, the scientific search for the afterlife, immortality and utopia. You can find out more about his other books and publications on his website, michaelshermer.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook, and follow the New Books Network on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. You can also find me on Twitter at CarrieLynnLand, that's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye! Until my next conversation about new books in secularism.